Hello, this is Christopher Eck. I am the lead pastor at Bethany Covenant Church in Bedford, New Hampshire. Welcome to our podcast. I hope this message inspires, helps, and encourages you as you seek to live your life with Jesus. For more information about our church or to support the ministry, visit BethanyCovenant.com. Enjoy the message. Hello, Bethany. I'm Pastor Christopher Eck from Bethany Church, Bethany Covenant Church in Bedford, New Hampshire. Glad that you joined us on our recorded message this week and on our podcast. Uh, whether you're watching at home or running and listening or walking and listening, uh, glad that we can join you with whatever you're doing in life at this time. Well, this is our fourth week in our series, You Are Not a Brand. And in early May, I was down at a conference in Atlanta. And it's at these conferences that I like to do a lot of planning and writing. And in one of the sessions, they had somebody talking about identity and how we form our identity in this kind of world and in this kind of culture. And they talked about the struggle that that is for adults and for teenagers and for children today is that question of identity and who am I? And they talked about the pressure that people felt to kind of put on kind of this outward appearance of a certain kind of lifestyle or a certain kind of life, especially in the social media world. And they used this line where he said, there's almost, there is pressure almost to put out a brand of who you are. And I wrote this phrase in my notebook, you are not a brand. And that's what we're doing in this sermon series, that people are not brands. You are not a brand. A brand is something that's artificial. A brand is something that we put on to try to impress others or to do image management. A brand takes a lot of work to maintain. A brand is how we attempt to shape who we are for the outside world. Being a brand does not get us to the real core of who we are. And yet the idea of having a personal brand is huge in our day. And so we try to construct somebody that we think the world is going to want to see. And then we use how the world sees it to kind of feel better about ourselves on the inside. But life doesn't work that way. We need to be able to do that good inner work, that good deeper work, so that then we kind of live out of the work that's being done inside us. You know, the human spirit was not made to be a brand. You know, you add into that the challenge in today's world that we are at a moment in history where we just have like millions and millions of influences telling us this is who you can be, this is what you can own, this is how you can be formed, this is this, this is this. They come at us with all that information. And so in today's world, the heat is on when it comes to forming an identity. And a lot of people in today's world will just kind of try on identities like costumes to see what works at what particular time. Or we may try and just write our own identity. Like we'll just kind of, oh, I'm just going to write who I want to be. Or we kind of build an identity off what we want other people to think. That the challenge today is the same. We're still asking that question, who am I? But the innumerable number of influence and voices that we need to wade through to find out who we are makes this moment a big challenge for us. And so the series has been about seeking 
from God's eyes who we are. You know, we are not looking to social media to tell us who we are. We are not looking to the government to tell us who we are. We're not looking to friends to tell us who we are. We're not even looking to, you know, ourselves to tell us who we really are. We're not looking deep inside to kind of find who we are. We're looking to God and trying to gain from God's perspective and understanding of how he made us and how he calls us and what purpose we have in life. And so the first three weeks, we've jumped into our imagination. And the first week, we imagined standing at the mirror first thing in the morning and asking that question, who am I? Second week, we stood at the full-length mirror and we noticed characteristics of ourselves. And we asked again that question, who am I? The third week, we, the third week, we um, kind of went out and had, started to have interactions with people. And we asked that question, how do I want other people to see me this week? And so today, I want you to imagine that your day is done. Your morning's done, you, your day at work is done, you've arrived home, and you sit for a moment. And for a moment, I mean two seconds, because that's, you know, as much time as you have to sit when you get home. And you eat dinner, and part of your routine at night is to, after dinner, go out for a walk in the neighborhood. And on this night, you're walking by yourself and you set out from your house and you start to walk through the neighborhood and you get pretty far, maybe a mile away from where your house is. And there, you start, you turn and face two undeveloped lots on your street. And you begin to wonder what is going to be built on these undeveloped lots. So you take a moment and you stand there and you that question, who am I, hits you because you've been part of the sermon series, and so that question is first and foremost in your mind. And instantly you think to yourself, I am someone loved by Christ. You realize that you've never said it that fast before. You are growing. The message is getting deeper in you. You remember John 3.16, and you have it memorized. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And you think how it does not say, oh, I worked so hard that God loves me. It does not say, I'm so good so God loves me. And you have peace that God's love comes to you no matter what the state of your life is. That God loves you unconditionally. And you just, have that sense of peace. The next night, you go out for another walk. You walk to the same place, wondering what will be built on these two side-by-side -side lots. And you remember from the previous day that moment that you had with God while walking. You know, and you ask yourself again that question, who am I? And the question comes, and the answer comes instantly, I am made in the image of God. Right away, you say it. And when you say it, it reminds you that you are bonded to God, that you are connected to God. And so that prompts you to pray for a problem in life that you're having. You pray about it, ask God for help. Now the problem doesn't go away instantly, but the flow of anxiety that you have lived with all day because of this problem finally starts to calm inside your heart. 
You're made in the image of God, bonded to God, connected to God. On the next night, you walk by the same site. On one of the lots, they began to dig the outline of a house. On the other, on the other lot, there's some rope outlining kind of, you know, maybe where a house would go in the shape of a house. And you remember at that moment the two previous nights where you asked the question, who am I? And you ask it again. And this time the answer comes as fast as you've said it before. Who am I? I am in Christ. And you even have Galatians 2.20 memorized and you think about it. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And you find yourself thinking of the day and the times where you did image management and tried to edit the outside and you say and you finally get a little bit of relief and peace as you're reminded I don't need to live that way I don't need to edit the outside to feel better on the inside and you're reminded of Christ's work deep inside who you are for a moment and and you even realize that you don't, at that moment, you even realize that you don't even need some big spectacular moment to experience God. Your thoughts are just on Christ on that walk. And for a moment, you wish that it was that easy all the time. But you were encouraged because growth has happened. One week later, you go on a walk and you pass by the same two lots. And on the lot where they had done the digging, there's now a foundation. It goes down pretty deep into the ground. On the other lot, the rope is still down, and there's lots of lumber sitting in the yard. And your first thought is, well, that can't be right. That property is not ready to build on. Why did they deliver the lumber there? The lumber should be at the house or should be at the lot with the foundation already on it. That strikes you as strange. So the next week you go by and now the lumber has been delivered to the house with the foundation as well. And the first boards are beginning to be put on top of the foundation as, they begun to, as they've begun to build the house. And then you look at the other lot. There's still no foundation, but they've started to put boards in the ground and started to build the house without a foundation. You're a little bit confused because that can't be right. You can't just build a house on a dirt ground or on a dirt foundation. So you walk by the next week and you watch the progress of the houses carefully on the weeks that you go. One house is being built at a poured foundation and the other house is being built on the dirt that was there. Over the months to come, you watch as both houses are built and finished. The ones with a foundation and the one that was just built on the dirt. And then you get a call from a friend. And they tell you that they are moving to your neighborhood. And they want to buy a house. And they ask you if there are any new houses for sale in your neighborhood. And you know of two houses for sale in your neighborhood. This is a friend you like. So it is easy to know which house to recommend buying. And it is the one with the foundation. Because you knew the one built on dirt, that was not going to last. You knew it would not withstand the storms and the problems. You knew it would not withstand even a minor earthquake. You knew 
that it was more likely to fall apart quickly, you make sure that your friend who you like chooses the house with the good foundation because that's the one that's going to last, be best for the future, and be the best home for living in. Just like we need to build good homes on good foundations, we need to build our lives on solid foundation. And this is what a solid foundation of identity does for us. It gives us a place to build all the other parts of life. And so what we've talked about in these previous two weeks is kind of like the lot with the foundation. I am loved by Christ. I'm made in the image of God. I am in Christ. And just for you theological students out there, being in Christ, I am including that that also means living in the power of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is there to support the work of Christ and the leading of Christ. So let's kind of put the Holy Spirit in that same box there. And when that is our foundation, when those three things are the foundation, then we're able to kind of build on top of this with all these other things of who we are. And when the other lot, where there is no foundation, well, then we end up taking these other things and trying to build on a non-foundation, and those things can't last or do well without that foundation. Major Ian Thomas, uh, this is a quote from a book called Identity Matters. And Major Ian Thomas, he wrote a book called The Indwelling Life of Christ. And he talks about the change that we begin to begin to build on when all of a sudden we kind of make that turn towards Jesus in our lives. And he gives us a definition of repentance that maybe is different than what you've experienced. Like when I think of the word repentance, it always seems to come with like a lot of yelling, you know, that kind of a thing. But he gives this definition. He says, true repentance is not being sorry for something you have done. No, if you do something wrong, you should be sorry. But that is not real repentance. Real repentance is hilariously exciting. It is facing the facts of life, recognizing how God made you, how you were intended to function, and then being restored to the relationship of mutual interavailability that the Lord Jesus enjoyed between himself and the Father, a mutual interavailability in which you are prepared to let him be God. That is true repentance. The true repentance is not wallowing in some old-fashioned church guilt. True repentance is not beating ourselves up before God. True repentance is not someone yelling at us about how awful that we've been. Real repentance is exciting because we're finally coming home to God. We get to see what kind of life we can now build going forward with God. And so once we have the foundation down, loved by God, named in the image of God in Christ, then we can start to kind of include all these other factors of life. Now, these other factors of who we are would do really well when they're built on the foundation of loved by God, made in the image of God, and, um, and in Christ. They do really well when they're built upon those foundations. But these nine factors are horrible if they need to be the foundation. Like they're great to build on a foundation, but they're horrible for a foundation. And one of the professors that I had in seminary, 
Professor Klein Snodgrass, um, a wonderful scholar and great author, um, he would talk a lot in classes about identity. And he recently wrote a book on the topic of identity. It's called Who God Says You Are. I just found out in the research of this series that this book existed, and it is excellent. And he gets into what he calls the nine factors that kind of shape our identity. Now, multiple authors have touched on these factors as well, but these factors are what we kind of put on the foundation of loved by God, made in the image of God, and in Christ. They are not very good being the foundation. And so I think when I talk about them, um, you'll admit like, oh yeah, that's a pretty big part of who I am. Oh yes, that's a big part of who I am. Like you're going to agree that these are big parts of who you are. But I hope you also see that they're great to put on top of the foundation that we've built, but they're awful to make the foundation of our lives. And so we've been asking the question, who am I? But let's change that question a little bit for the next part. And this next question will be, is what are the things that shape who I am? What are the things that shape who I am? And you're probably, your mind's going to be flooded with things. And today, I just want to look at one of them. And this one is really built on the foundation of the three that we've already talked about. It's a terrible foundation all on its own, and I think you'll see that. It is important for each of us, but it is not a foundation point. It gets built on the foundation. And so the first one I want to talk about is something that we all have. It is something that is a part of all of our lives. And it's all different depending on, you know, depending on a bunch of different things in our lives. And so a major factor in identity, in our identity is this, is we each have a history. We each have a past. We each have what Trevor Hudson calls a personal story. We each have a history. We each have a past. We each have a personal story. When we visit my mom in Massachusetts, um, she has about 50 of something in her house, and I think we have like three of the same things in our house. And, um, and you know what it is? It's photo albums. You know, like my mom has like 50 photo albums, tons of pictures. I think we have like three. Our wedding album, you know, one album from me from high school and college. And then Rochelle may have one album um, of kind of going back in her life. And so I can go to Massachusetts to my mom's house and I can look through all these old photo albums. I can kind of get a glimpse of history, of my past, of my growing up. I get to see old pictures of family vacations. I get to see the old ways that our house was decorated. I see places we visited when I was a kid. I see, got to see pic pictures of where I grew up. I grew up in a house in Massachusetts in a neighborhood full of kids. Where I grew up shaped who I am. It's a part of my past. It's a part of my history. It's a part of my personal story. And so it's shaped me where you grew up, the home you grew up in, the neighborhood you grew up in, the country that you grew up in, that has shaped you. That is a part of your history, a part of your past, a part of your personal story. If you grew up in Bedford, New Hampshire, this is a part of your personal story. When we look at our personal histories, 
We also look at our family, the job that our parents did as parents, our brothers and sisters, our cousins, our grandparents, whether we were close to them or not. We think about things like the money that our family have or the money that our families didn't have. We think about major life changes that happened in our family. All those things in our past had a pretty big influence on who we became. Everyone has a history. Everyone has a past. Everyone has a personal story. What generation you were born into will affect who you are today. And each generation has faced these kind of defining moments of various degrees in their growing up years. You know, for those of you in school age years, these past few years, you know, what you went through with COVID will shape you. Um, you were the first generation to do school on Zoom. You know, you experience missing field trips and missing proms and missing dances, missing graduations. You experience the division of a culture at a pretty significant moment. That'll be part of your story as you go forward. 50 years, you'll be like, oh, remember when we went on Zoom for school and, you know, the kids now will have like holographs of whole classrooms or something like that or holograms of all classrooms, you know, and you'll tell that story. In a very different way, uh, 9-11 shaped a generation here in our country. We remember where we were on that day. Before that, the Cold War shaped a generation, the constant threat of some sort of nuclear incident or war that could come to our world. The Vietnam War shaped a generation. The, you know, just all that happened in people's response to the Vietnam War. The Korean War shaped a generation. World War II shaped a generation. The Great Depression shaped a generation. You know, my grandparents, like, they didn't throw stuff away. They found double uses for everything because there were years that were pretty lean and pretty scarce. And now we just kind of throw everything away the minute it passes its usefulness. World War I defined a generation before that. Each generation has had main, minor or major world events that have shaped them in the way that they see the world. You know, it was that way in, even in Jesus' day. Jesus' home country was shaped by Roman occupation. It was part of his story, part of their world. Everyone has a history. Everyone has a past. Everyone has a personal story. And that shapes who we are in the present. We are shaped by the choices that we make in the past. The choices that we made, some of them great choices. You know, whether that's like where to go to school or what to invest in, you know, or relationship choices in the past. Just some choices that we just did great with. Other choices, not so great. You know, we're even shaped by our poor choices in life. We're shaped by the choices of others. That sometimes people around us make good choices and it gives us life. At other times, the people around us make awful choices and we become victims of their horrible choices. We probably each have key stories in our lives that we point back to. 
whether it was winning a game, losing a game, doing well on a test, doing horrible at a test. Like we have kind of these friendship moments. We have these defining moments that we can look back at and kind of say, oh, that definitely influenced who I am today. We can all look back and see times of great blessing and goodness, times where we just felt loved by God and sensed God's presence and God's daily goodness. There are other parts of our history that are going to be quite painful, and they have shaped us. Trevor Hudson gives us this powerful image. He says, each of us sits beside a pool of tears. You know, like we've all cried about things in life. And, um, you know, if you just like sit down and you imagine all the tears that you've cried in a pool next to you, you know, for some of you, it's going to be like an ocean, you know, others, it's like, oh, it's a little small puddle. And, um, and these, you know, he said, these pools reflect those memories that are hard to bear, whatever they are, betrayal, neglect, unfair tragedy. These memories are an integral part of our spiritual autobiographies. We each have a history. We each have a past. We each have a personal story. Now, I acknowledge this not so that we can just kind of focus on us again, but so that we see the way that God has been working throughout our lives. You know, the scriptures do not just pick up on people's stories when it gets to like the big moments. You know, part of the fascination with the Bible and with the scriptures is that it does these deep dives into people's long histories before maybe they become well known. You are leaving out a major part of Joseph's story if you just jumped right to when he was finally in charge in Egypt or second in charge in Egypt. You know, we would wonder as a reader, well, why care about this person? But you throw in the attempted murder of his brothers, the being sold into slavery, interpreting the dreams while in jail, and you really start to shape a personal story. You're leaving out a lot of the story of Ruth if you leave out that her husband passed away. And you just pick it up right at the very end. You're leaving out a lot of the story of Paul if you don't mention that prior to being a follower of Jesus, he was a persecutor of the church and oversaw the killing of people who followed Jesus. You leave out a pretty big chunk of his story if you don't tell that. You are leaving out a lot of the story of Jesus. If we just picked up at Jesus' resurrection, you know, I mean, the resurrection was the defining time of Jesus' life. Like, that was the moment, the resurrection in Jesus' life. Um, probably the most important moment of Jesus' life. But the resurrection, you know, is, we don't just pick it up there. We go back and we see his whole story. The resurrection, if this is even possible, not resurrection, but if it's possible, takes on even greater wonder when you know Jesus was born into a poor peasant family. Like the resurrection is amazing, but it takes on even a greater power when you realize he was born into a poor peasant family. It takes on even more wonder when you read the profound teachings of Jesus. It takes on even more wonder when you hear about Jesus' love and care for people. It takes on even more wonder when you just realize that Jesus loved having dinner with his friends. You know, like here's somebody who would be resurrected from the dead one day and one of his favorite things to do was to just be with his friends and enjoy a simple meal. Jesus had a history. Jesus had a past. 
Jesus had a personal story. For Jesus, even being the Savior of the world, his birthplace, his parents, his family, his education, his baptism, his friends, they were all an important part of who Jesus was and shaped who Jesus was. We have a history. We have a past. We have a personal story. But here's what our past and our history and our personal story is not. Is our history and our past and our personal story is not the foundation of our life in the present. It's not the foundation that we're building our present and our future on. That really our history and our past and our personal story are kind of on the foundation that we've already built these previous three weeks. Um, Snodgrass, Klein Snodgrass, he uses the term that that he uses the term ultimate defining force, you know? And our history, our past, our personal story is not the ultimate defining force of our identity. Um, I love that phrase, that our history, our past, and our personal story do not serve as a sustainable foundation for us to build our life on. Our past, even as big of a deal as it is in our life, is not the determining factor of our present or of our future. Peter Scazzaro, he gives this great illustration um, to make this point that our past doesn't need to be the defining thing for our present and for our future. And he gives an illustration from Charles Dickens in Charles Dickens' book, Great Expectations. And there's a character, Mrs. Haversham, and she is the daughter of a wealthy man. And on her wedding day at 8.40 a.m., she received a letter that her husband, that her fiancé was not coming to the wedding. The engagement would be broken. Dickens then writes that she stopped all the clocks in the house at the precise time the letter arrived and spent the rest of her life in the bridal dress and eventually turned yellow, wearing only one shoe since that's what she had on at the time. And Dickens says, it was as if everything in the room and the house had stopped. And Scazzaro says, she decided to live in the past, not her present or future. It's a powerful image from Dickens who understands how we can get caught in our past and held back in our past and stuck in a moment. And Dickens saw that it's easy for us to make the past the ultimate defining force in our present and in our future, to then see everything through the lens of the past to the place where it influences how we see the present and how we see the future. The past we cannot change. But we can experience change and in the present and certainly in the future that, and certainly experience change in the future that can help us break free from the power of the past. And so different than the story of Vis Haversham and Great Expectations are the stories of many people in the Scripture that did not get stuck in the power of the past. You know, Joseph's future was not the time that he spent in the pit after his brothers threw him in there. 
He didn't say for the rest of his life, well, I'm just kind of the pit guy. That's my life. Oh, no, I can't serve Pharaoh in your court because I'm just the pit guy. You know, oh, no, I can't live in this palace because I'm just the pit guy. You know, you can't be number two in Egypt from the bottom of a pit. And he had to kind of say, okay, that's a part of my story, but it's not the ultimate determiner of who I'm going to be. Ruth did not let the tragic death of someone she loved define her life. Yes, she grieved it. The grief comes through in the scriptural record. Yes, it is not something that we would want for anyone that we care for or love in life. But God was the ultimate defining force in her life. God's love was the ultimate defining force in her life. And being made in the image of God, it was the ultimate defining force in her life. And event, you know, she didn't just live in that one place. Recognize that God had a different present and different future for her. Paul did not let his past be the ultimate defining force in his life. If he did, he never would have... He, if he did, he would have committed to a life of making up for all his past mistakes. He would have never received the grace of God because he never thought that that could have been something that he could have received. And I think Paul would have thought that there'd been no way that there could be any healing for what had been done because what had been done was pretty horrible. He never could have accepted anything close to the grace God had for him because he just would have been stuck in that place in his past. God's love and the forgiveness that flowed from God's love became the ultimate defining force for him. It allowed him not to just be stuck in the past, but to live free in the present and in the future. Being made in the image of God and seeing others in the image of God and treating them with the status due that designation, that wouldn't have been possible for Paul, but he made that break and he began to do that in life. Paul was in Christ and that was the defining force of his life. We all have a history. We all have a past. We all have a personal story. They are part of who we are. But Christ and our life with Christ is the powerful healing presence of our past. So who am I? I am someone loved by Christ. That now supersedes everyone else's opinion or words that they have ever spoken to you. You are loved by Christ. That's the foundation. Everything else that people have said to you, loved by Christ is a higher quality of words than that. Loved by Christ is the ultimate defining force, not the rejections that you've experienced. We've all experienced rejections, but loved by Christ is the ultimate defining force. Loved by Christ is the ultimate defining force not the nasty words of other people. Time did not stop at our most painful moment. Christ moves time forward and does so with hope. Do we all need to heal from our past? Yes. Does our past define us? Now that we are in Christ, it does not. When we ask the question, who am I? 
I am made in the image of God. That is now the ultimate defining force in your life. It is greater than your history and your past. Our family and family systems that we grew up in, they are important. Probably we grew up in with families that there were the good things and then where there were the things that are pretty hurtful and we're still healing from. But though that's not the that's not the that is not the ultimate defining force in your life. Being made in the image of God is the defining force in your life, not your DNA or your genetics. Being made in the image of God is the defining force in your life, not where you were born. The others are important, but they are never meant to be the foundation. They are meant to be lived on the foundation of God. Who am I? I am in Christ. That now supersedes all other identities that the world has ever known. When you are in Christ, that is the ultimate defining force of your life, not what country you were born into. When you're in Christ, that is the ultimate defining force in your life, not what stuff you own. In, when you're in Christ, that is the ultimate defining force in your life, not your attractions. When you're in Christ, that is the ultimate defining force in your life, not the education that you may have. We all have a history. We all have a past. We all have a personal story but they're not the foundation they're not the determiner of our lives they are meant to then be lived on the foundation of loved by god made in the image of god living our lives in christ and so i want to read you one section of snodgrass's book on identity where he talks about what he calls an extremely important text and it's first corinthians 15 8 through 10 and it says this last of all as to someone of an untimely birth, he also appeared to me. Paul's talking about Jesus. Jesus also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles. I am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecute the church of God. Paul's now pointing to his history, to his past. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not useless. Rather, I labored more than all of them, not I, but the grace of God with me. Now, when Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am, this is Snodgrass writing, he made the most freeing statement in all the world. This is not a statement of arrogance or distance from others. Paul is not saying, this is just who I am and leave me alone. That can be a common kind of attitude in our world today. It is not a statement of one who takes grace lightly or does not know the significance of Christian faith. It is a statement describing the experience of one whose life has been turned around, reordered, and given responsibility he did not deserve. Paul is saying, in effect, by his grace, God has taken the deadness of my history and created life and value. And he has engaged me in his own work. And Klein Snodgrass goes on to say, this should be the witness of all Christians. But you are not permitted to say, by the grace of God, I am what I am, unless you can also point to, the gray, to that grace being a transforming power that has put you to work for God.
I love that paraphrase. By God's grace, by His grace, God has taken the deadness of my history and created life and value, and He's engaged me in His own work. We all have a history. We all have a past. We all have a personal story. They are part of who we are, but they are not the ultimate defining force of our identity. When it comes to our past, let me just give you kind of three beginning steps that you can take today. First is celebrate and give God thanks for your history, for your past, for your personal story that has been healthy and good. You know, gratitude is healing for us and it grounds us in God's reality of goodness. And so when we express gratitude of God, we're kind of living on that firm foundation. We're kind of building on the foundation that we have. And so gratitude shows that we're in that firm foundation place. Entitlement, that is shifting sand. Gratitude is being built on a foundation. And so that's the first thing, is just celebrate the things in your history, the things in your past that you can be grateful for. Second thing is that chances are for all of us, we are all in various stages of healing from our past. You know, some things you've maybe reached the tail end of, and you just kind of feel a healing there that you didn't feel 10 years ago. Others, some other things, you may not have even have started the healing process on because you just know the weight that it's going to carry. Maybe on some others, you're kind of like in the middle. You've taken some steps, but those steps have been hard fought to kind of grind through some healing. So the phrase that I'll use when seeking healing from the past when I'm unable to forgive somebody or heal completely, is I always say, okay, I'm not there yet. I'm not at peace with what I went through. I'm not ready to forgive. I'm still angry and I'm hurting. But one day, one day, I intend to get there. One day, I plan on finding a place of peace. One day, I plan on finding a place of forgiveness. And so maybe you're having great difficulty healing from your past. You don't need to feel the pressure to rush it or rush your way to healing. But you can begin to say, I am not there yet, but I intend to get there. And then the third thing is a little bit of an exercise. And, and I think that this is very valuable to do. I would encourage everybody to do this if you've never done it. Um, I've had to do it a couple times um, just because of being a pastor and going to seminary and all those kinds of things. Um, but what you can do is actually write a little bit of your spiritual autobiography. You know, you think about like the earliest moments that you had with God you know, and how you thought about God as a kid and how that developed and steps taking through that. You can include times of closeness with God and times of distance with God. You include maybe kind of like pivotal moments in your life with God. Include key people and the influence that they had on you. Um, it's amazing how much insight something like that will bring to how God has worked in your past. And really, when I've done it, it's been a reminder of God's love and God's presence 
in my past as well. And it, many times a healing moment too. And so that's the third thing that you could do this week is maybe write out a little bit of a spiritual autobiography. Maybe take an hour this week or a half an hour and just start to sketch that out a little bit of what that would look like. And then, and then I'll collect those from you next Sunday and they'll be graded on content and grammar and, you know, um, you know so, so we'll do that. You, there are some people here that are thinking like, oh, finally church homework. And like they're already planning to email me like, how many pages does it need to be? Does it need to be single space? Does it need to be doubled space? How would you like the footnotes, Pastor Chris? Um, does it need a title page? You know, like, do you know who you are? You kind of like, you know, type A overachievers out there, like you're already like planning this. There are others of you and you're like right now, there's no way I'm doing church homework. Yeah, not doing church homework. I avoided homework all my life. I'm not doing church homework now. You know, so some of you are thinking that. Others of you are thinking like, you know, does it have to be like paper? Or can it be like a poem that I write? Can it be like a art piece that I put together or maybe like a dance. I can dance my life and show my story. You know, others of you are thinking, you know, because of who you are, of like how you can put it in the numbers. You know, so you're like, I was born into my parents' home with three sisters. After I was born, there was two more brothers born, but two of the sisters had already gone off to college. So how many siblings did I live with? They really shaped who I am today. You know, you're kind of like turning it into a math problem already. Um, usually I do the unfunny jokes at the beginning of the message, um, but today I kept them for the end of the message. Um, and um, because I think it's these moments like this where we can again be reminded that we're loved by God and enjoy the life that God has given us that we are not external brands that rob us of our humanity, that rob us of our dignity, that rob us of who God made us to be, that rob us of who God intends us to be. We are not external brands. We were made in the divine image of God. And we can live as people and laugh and enjoy life because of that. We can find the goodness in God because of that. And so those are three steps that you can take this week as you start to do a little bit of work in your past. Celebrate what God has done. Figure out the various stages of healing where you are and say, I may not be there yet, but one day I will be there. And then third is to write a spiritual biography. Take an hour this week or an hour next week and just kind of write that out and see how God works in that practice in your life. Let us pray. Lord, we know in this world that healing um, does not come easy, but it is possible. We can have great hope that we can be healed because you went to the cross and you were resurrected from the dead. And we have a long record of people through the scriptures who have found true healing from their past. We have long records of people in Christian history who has found healing from their past. We have a lot of stories here at Bethany of people who have been healed of many things from their past. And so give us that hope today. Help us to be able to say, I may not be there yet, but one day, God, 
I'm going to be there. And I look forward to the freedom that comes with that healing. Lord, we ask your blessing this week on our lives. Lord, may your spirit bring to our minds Jesus Christ constantly. When we are anxious, let us pray. When we encounter problems, let us seek your wisdom. When we are with a friend or a stranger, let us extend the kind of patience and peace and love, Jesus, that you extended to strangers and friends. Lord, we ask for your daily help and your blessing on the week to come. In your name, amen. Well, next week, we're going to continue on with our series, You Are Not a Brand. And kind of as we looked at our past today and how that plays into who we are, we're going to look at some of the other factors that play into who we are that aren't good foundations, but they're great for understanding on the foundation that we built in those first three weeks. So I hope that you join us here on our video message or on our podcast. Uh, go this week with God's blessing and with God's love. I will see you again next week.